whatever's in my heart. Hello, welcome, welcome to Dancing on Desks. I am your storyteller, Monet Cooper. And I'm Erin Thiesing. Welcome back, y'all. Yes, we're back with season two. We're feeling good. The sun is shining on this day. And um, we want to be sure y'all know who we are, who we be. And um, so we want to reintroduce ourselves. I know we have some new listeners, some new storytellers, and we're so grateful for our returning folks. Yes. So Monet, would you tell us about who you are in this space? So I use she, her pronouns. I'm from Decatur where it's greater. I'm a Georgia peach and all my people are there. I'm the daughter of educators and the daughter of Black folks educated and loved by Black folks in schools. I'm queer. I'm a poet and a writer, a dog mama, a lover to my love, Mara. And after teaching English uh, for 11 years in middle and high schools in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, I became a doctoral student here in Michigan. And I study how the experiences of African-American and Latinx queer and trans girls and gender non-conforming youth have the potential to transform their futures, all of our futures. I love a morning walk. I love an evening walk. And if anything, I want folks to to get free. What about you, Erin? So I'm Erin and my pronouns are she and her. I'm a white elementary classroom teacher and this year I'm teaching third grade in London, England. I grew up attending schools all over the US and for the past 13 years I've taught in schools in Philly, DC, Paris, and now in London. And even with all this moving, I really call New Hampshire home. That's where my folks are, that's where I went to high school and where I went to college. And I think with all of that, I am really my best self outside. I'm a hiker, I'm a runner, I'm a wannabe gardener, a plant mom, and a cook for sure. I love to read, to cook, and to love on all of my friends, my husband Elliot, and our dog Hugo, who you might sometimes hear in the background when we're recording. So this is just a little bit about us. So we hope you'll stick around as we move through season two, where we will hopefully get to know more about you and you'll get to know more about us. We had a really transformative summer, y'all. When we left off last season, we shared that we were launching a project called Beyond the Band, funded with a $1,000 grant from the Abolitionist Teaching Network. And we're really grateful for those funds. And we were able to pay two youth, Amara and Madison, who you'll hear from next episode, episode two, to build a dream project of their own. I think for us as educators, as humans, what we were able to learn with them and Adrian King, who was the adult youth worker who really worked closely with them, it was a lesson in moving slow and slow studies. And that's like not the only lesson this summer. I think we both had really transformational summers. This summer for me also was one where I was having to really 
practice relinquishing what I could control. At the end of the school year, I said goodbye to the school I had been teaching at for the last five years and to my colleagues and to my students and spent the summer packing our apartment in Paris and planning our move to London. Every So many things went not the way we wanted them to in, in terms of our visas. And I guess what was important was just like choosing to decide what I would control or not control in the space or what I would worry about or not worry about. And I ending up having to just really trust that both my partner Elliot and I had and our community had what it would take to to help this move happen. And so it's been it's been a time of asking for help and making myself vulnerable to others. I think I've been trying to really what I've learned from this is around moving at the speed of trust and knowing that everything will come in its time. Since we last left off and checked in in June, in what are in what other ways was the summer transformational for you? I think, you know, as a teacher, it was rare for me to take a summer, quote unquote, off from Mm -hmm. working. As a graduate student, the summer is when we're reading. This is my pre-candidacy year. So I am expected to achieve candidacy by the end of, of this semester this year. I made a decision that I wasn't going to multitask my life. I was gonna read, I was gonna go for walks, I was gonna spend time, you know, really like being with my interior self. And I don't think that that's something I've, I've offered myself for a really long time. And um, there are always pressures from our jobs. And I know that many of us as educators and people in education, we love the work that we do and um, we find a lot of meaning from it. But I think one of the places that I landed at the end of our season was just what does it mean to offer myself time to rest? And when I'm offering myself time to rest, it means that I'm I'm able to, to just make better deliberate decisions about the things that I'm really wanting to do even things that I'm fearful of doing. And so that meant that I, my partner and I, we had more time to be with each other. And it, it also meant that I wasn't multitasking and doing 10 million things while we are trying to have a baby. We're trying to, to bring another life into this world and expand our family. And even though we were unsuccessful in doing that this summer, I'm so grateful for the decision I made for trusting myself and um, for just offering myself the opportunity to say yes to me and, and no to the things that I think sometimes I've been really afraid to say no to. I'm really grateful for what the yes taught me this summer. The summer really allowed us to, to rest a little bit. I mean, it was busy, but in, in resting, we were able to really reflect about what we wanted to listen with you all about. One of the things that feels really important for us to share is that, you know, our hive mind, um, who you can see on our website, is is so integral to the process of building our season and building our episodes. So we just want to shout them out for helping us to be sure that that the ways we're moving are accountable to liberation, accountable to abolition, accountable to dismantling, destroying systems of anti-Blackness and white supremacy, even as we're building and seeding beautiful ways of learning, beautiful ways of being together. And so we have four central 
through lines this season. And I think the first is ensuring that, you know, what we're doing is is accountable and listens to youth. And, and our first two episodes are really the voices of youth and their experiences in school. Yeah. And, and then also we've, as we've been in conversation with, with educators, with young people who are, who are in school spaces right now, we really know that this is work that we just can't do alone and can't be done in isolation. And so we also, we really will plan to be centering stories of community and being in community as really a form of building power and as well as a way of also engaging in community care and self-care in order to do that work. We also are going to be sharing stories of the ways in which educators and caregivers and community members and youth have built coalitions or are engaging in coalition building together in their, in their places of learning. I think our, our final point is making interventions in memory in our individual and collective memory. So, you know, so much of where we are is not by accident. The system, all of all of this is by design. And so where did this did the systems we are are working to dismantle come from um, so that we can know how to dismantle them? And so what's really important for us this season is talking with elders as much as thinking about those histories. So naming, naming how we got here and why. So we know how to dismantle it. To start that off, we had the chance to be in conversation with Hafiza, Britton, and Julia, our friends at DAM. DAM is Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan. And Hafiza and Britton host the incredible, energizing podcast, Get Schooled, um, which is based in Detroit, Michigan. We're so excited to bring them and to share their stories. Then we chat with now middle schoolers, Kai Day, Kendall, and Grayson, who tell us some stories about the community they built from biking to school with their elementary teacher, Emily Stutz at PS372 in Brooklyn, New York. And um, we close our time together with a good word from Lakeisha Sanders, lawyer and historian about the history of student debt or what is called student debt and how we arrived at this moment of debt cancellation for students with federal loans. How was student debt ever a thing? This conversation is around movement building, friendship, self-liberation, rest. And the question we're really asking each other, ourselves, and you to be thinking about as you're listening is how do youth and adults co-build spaces of accountability, listening, dreaming, and freedom? in and outside of school. So with that said, let's turn it over to Britton, Hafiza, and Julia. Hi, my name is Hafiza Kalik. I use she or they pronouns. I'm an organizer and activist here in Detroit. I have been with DAM for, this is my third year with DAM, which for Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan. It's a youth-led social justice organization, uh, which is completely youth-led and youth-oriented. This is like my second year as chair of DAM. So I've been helping with a lot of the things that we've been doing, specifically uh, the uniform campaign, which has been to remove the uniform policy in our school district. We are still continuing to work on that. I just finished like my first week of senior year, um, which is exciting, but also exhausting. I'm also involved with other organizations 
locally, statewide, and nationally. Hi, everyone. My name is Britton Benjamin Kelly. I use she, her pronouns. I'm also here with Dam. I just graduated high school in June. I'm also a youth activist and organizer. Um, my name is Julia Cunio. I use she and they pronouns, and I am a youth organizer with Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan. So Britton and Hafiza and the other youth leaders in DAM are my bosses and I help them to execute campaigns or social justice direct actions that they want to do throughout the year. Oh my gosh, this is like the best story I have. Julia knows the story inside out because it's how we met. In 10th grade, that was like when we were completely virtual. Our our schools were just absolutely horrible online. Like teachers didn't know how to use platforms and we had so many different platforms. Uh, we had eight hours, so 40 hours a week on the screen plus um, homework after school, which is even more screen time. Um, and we had excessive homework, like really bad. I um, mean, so we just had so many things going in and then teachers were like mandating cameras. And so I was just fed up and I went to the school board meeting and I like wrote something. <laughs> I like did public comment and I spoke like like really angrily. The district has once again failed us by trying to find a viable solution for face-to-face -face when it is clear to see that it will never work because there will be someone at risk at all times. The only safe way is to conduct virtual learning. However, while DPSCD tried to pull all of these regulations in to create a so-called safe environment, they completely disregarded the online learning curriculum. And I can assure you, Madam Chair, that it was the most blatant lie that you could have told at the beginning of this meeting when you claimed that the first day of school went well. The lack of preparedness was quite visible. The district and school board continuously arrived right in front of our faces. After that happened, it turns out uh, one of my friends, it was Jacolia, um, who is also with Dam. It turns out that, that she found out that in the group chat with Dam that Julia was like, who is this person? I want to recruit this person. Does anyone know who this is? Um, and so Jacolia, my friend who was in the group chat at the time, was like, yes, I know her. That's like where I came in. I was like, yes, let me join. Um, and then I told my sister about it. And it turns out that she's one of the co-founders of Dam. Um, she was in Dam like when it like first started in 2018. Um, and so I was like, wow, I've like never heard of this. This is something that I've always wanted to be involved in. I just never knew about it until now. And then like after being a dam, I was like, like, wow, like this is what youth led spaces are like. So that's why I just I love dam like the most. It's truly youth led. Like a lot of spaces say that they are youth led, but they actually have adults are like controlling or just take management of everything. And it doesn't really feel like youth led. And also being able to find so many cool young people in Detroit or and Metro Detroit. Like that's why I joined dam. <laughs> I absolutely love dam. It was a complete coincidence that I found out about it, um, but I'm happy I took that first step because now I, I'm here. Man, that school board meeting where Hafisa spoke made her famous, literally. All of the teachers loved her after that. Her speech was so emotional and she was vulnerable and it was just amazing. Really iconic. I don't think anyone who was there is ever going to forget that. I actually joined Dam from Hafiza after she found out about it. She was like, hey, I think you've been interested. Join the group chat if you want to. I was like, okay, thanks. So 
I joined around the same time as her, but I wasn't really super active. I didn't really start being active until later in the school year, maybe around spring. A lot of schools in my district and in the city and the state would constantly open and reopen because of COVID cases in person. And it was a really bad system for everyone. And at the time, we felt like it would be better for schools to be fully virtual. So we did some work around that. And that's how I became really, really involved. And then after that, I started doing more work, some stuff with COVID education and a lot around mental health. What we do now has grown out of that. Because uh, Monica said, okay, you know, I described what I wanted to do with her. And she said, okay, here's the money for it. Uh, and she's an elder who's been an activist and, and just a radical, amazing, incredible organizer and leader for years and years and years, decades. And I couldn't believe that she was going to invest in my program just randomly with no real uh, proof that it would work or, or that it was a thing. And the young people that I was connected with through We the People of Detroit, eventually during the uh, March for Our Lives uprisings against gun violence in schools, those young people wanted to lead a Detroit march. They asked me for support. I was in the room with them, especially because they were dealing with some meddlesome adults, especially um, white women from the suburbs who were wanting to control the March for Our Lives and, and have control the narrative. And the young people really wanted someone in this space who would uh, push back on them. And they also were pushing back on them very effectively. So by the time I got there, those adults were really kind of had been blocked out. But they were very intentional about their identities and their messaging and, and trying to be very intersectional when talking about gun violence. And so when we finished the March for Our Lives, we were like, we want to create a youth-run organization that does this all the time. And that's how DAM was born. We didn't want to be a March for Our Lives branch. We wanted to be an autonomous multi-issue organization. And so we founded DAM. There's definitely a clear difference between DAM and school extracurricular activities. You are literally, literally making decisions. Like as a student or as a young person, you're typically being lectured or being given instructions or having to listen no matter what you're doing. And in DAM, you're using your own ideas to contribute to the space. You have other people that are disagreeing or agreeing with you. And it's always, there's never any arguments. We have people doing different things. People are passionate about different things. And you have people, you always have someone to support you. There's always someone who wants to do something with you, which I think is really nice. Um, because you all pretty much believe in the same things. You're pretty much in charge of yourself and you don't have to wait for someone else's approval to do something. And it feels like a real family and you always have someone to support you. And I don't think that's something you can find just anywhere. Either someone in our meeting will be like, hey, I want to do a campaign about this, or I saw this happen in the news, we should do something about this. And then we'll plan something together. We'll have a plan for it. Um, and the second way is Julia will have people reach out to her and be like, hey, I'm looking for people to do this. And they'll come to the meeting and be like, hey, someone just reached out to me. Is anyone interested? And then we'll go from there. I think there's also a lot of guilt involved in the process because there's so much going on. Climate change, school shootings, like it's come to a point where like if you don't pick one you feel guilty because like you didn't pick that issue just because there are so many things going on like 
you should choose one thing so that you can focus on that because there are other people doing good work but it's at the same time like like it feels like the momentum has died for so many things and it's like should I really be focusing on this right now or should I go help out there I mean so there's like a lot of guilt involved when it comes to like choosing what you want to work on specifically because not everyone can do everything that's not what collective liberation is with the uniform campaign that actually came up because of um Cass uh getting free dress because they received a 70 percent vaccination rate one thing that would always come up in our conversation is like i got dress coded Ugh, this happened this happened um and so that's like why we decided on that campaign specifically for last year because one we were returning to in person which means everyone's bodies would once again be policed because they could do that to a certain extent online but not to a point where they could say you can't wear that in your house which they did try but um and so like because like one we were returning in person a lot of things were going to change um and two we knew that dress code would be a big issue because Cass is the only school in the district that is now allowed to have free dress just because they received a 70% vaccination rate, which, you know, goes against their entire argument saying that students being in uniform relates to success because Cass Tech's second to none, but like at the same time, like we don't have the uniform. So how does this make sense? Um, and so, yeah, we, we got to do something about this. <laughs> we decide on these things based on like what we feel students need the most. I know there was like a lot of mutual aid um, and like healing spaces because of COVID. And so like, cause that's what students needed at the time. Um, and then like we moved into like the uniform policy and targeting that for the last year because that's what we feel students needed at the time. That's also something that we still do need now, but things are changing, constantly changing. It's like now that we're back in school, like what do students need? I feel like we struggle to progress as a society because we are ignorant. We, for one, we're all working so much that we don't really have the time to just sit down and think about what's going on around us because we're just so stressed thinking about ourselves and what we've got going on for the next day or next week or next month and how my friends doing, how my how's my family doing, and it's hard to think about how what you're doing affects other people because you're just trying to survive and. When we do take the time to think about certain things and listen to other people's experiences, we realize how much everything we do affects each other. And we should probably take some steps to change that. People aren't going to understand what you're going through unless you tell them. And so that's why I think vulnerability can be important. I don't think anyone should be forced to be vulnerable, but when you are vulnerable, um, it should be in a space where people are willing to listen and understand you. And I think other people should be willing to listen and understand others when they are being vulnerable because personal experiences are really important. Everyone's different. Everyone has lived different lives, but we all have our similarities. When you hear someone say something, you might think, wow, I never even thought about it that way. Or you'll think, wow, that's that's literally me. Like I've experienced that before. It helps everyone be more self-aware and also learn about other people. And I think that's how we can progress because everything we do is connected in a way the way I interact with others affects you and the way you interact affects me. And I think when everyone understands that, we can move on and progress. So I'm thinking of the famous quote by Marsha P. Johnson, no pride for some of us without 
liberation for all of us. And that's something that I think about a lot. I made a whole zine out of it. <laughs> um, but I love that quote so much because intersectionality is something that's really important. Um, we all have so many layers of identities um, that we carry, of, of traumas that we carry, of experiences and beliefs and morals and principles that we all carry. Um, and so it's, it's so important to remember that what we want is collective liberation, but we can't have that if we're not including everyone. And everyone doesn't just share one identity. We all share so many different identities, like race, ethnicity, religion, class, ability. There is no liberation if everyone is included in that. Just making sure that we aren't erasing other people's identities and instead making sure that we put marginalized voices in the front making sure that we aren't vulnerable because storytelling is important. Storytelling is one of the most important things when it comes to organizing. As, as an organizer, we all have stories. Um, and those stories are what led us to this work, um, to continue doing this work. And we have stories from our work. And those are stories that, that need to be shared, that need to be also documented because our ancestry. Older generations are going to leave this planet and most of their stories will go undocumented or unheard of, like getting older generations to open up um, about their stories because like one day you're going to be gone and I'm not going to know who I am because I don't know who you were in the first place. Um, and so my parents carry so much grief and trauma and experiences of living alone underage in a country where they don't speak the language, where they don't eat the food or they don't like wear the clothes that people do and so they grew up in a completely isolated place and those stories are something that they don't talk about because they're scared um they're scared to open up they're scared to be vulnerable um and so it's so important that we are vulnerable and sharing those stories because one day we're gonna be gone it might be tomorrow it might be next week we don't know but like having someone know like who you were as a person, what you experienced. Um, and it's also hard to understand yourself when you don't understand the history of your communities um, or the history of your family. History is also really important when it comes to collective liberation. I love I love everything that Hafiz and Britain shared here. And just want to uplift also the role of vulnerability for adult allies. If for any educators listening, I think one of the things that we get trained in throughout our lives is that adults are supposed to know the answers to things and have all of the knowledge of the world and be able to tell young people, this is what is correct and this is what to do. And um, one of the gifts of youth organizing to me is the relief of sort of being able to take that weight off as an adult and say, I don't have all the answers. I don't know exactly what we should do. What do y'all think we should do? It can be a very powerful feeling for the adult in the room as well as for the young people. So it's not just like a one-way street of empowerment, but that vulnerability as an adult being able to say, I don't have all the answers. I'm in this with you. We're figuring it out is a very different dynamic than I think a lot of us as adults are used to being in with young people. Before joining them and getting involved with community organizing, I think I was a very timid person. I would always wait for someone else to come to me to talk or I'd wait for someone to ask me for something. I wouldn't reach out to other people. I was a very like reactive person. 
But after that, I noticed subtle changes. Like when I'm in school, I used to be afraid of eye contact. So I'd always keep my eyes low when walking in the hallways. But afterwards, I would just look up at people and just look at their faces and just observe my surroundings more. And I felt more comfortable doing that. I wouldn't talk to my classmates a lot, but now I've been talking to people more. It's just subtle confidence changes. Like I'm important. I'm a person and I belong here. I'm allowed to take up space. I can say and do things. So it has really changed my confidence, just changed me as a person. First and foremost, I notice more things. I look around and think there's something wrong with that. That's not okay. I've just become so much more aware of my surroundings. And I talk to people more about stuff, about the real world, and not just this show that I watched two weeks ago. I think about like real life stuff. Like, hey, what do you think about this? I don't know. I just feel like more of an individual, like a real person, instead of just someone on the sidelines letting time pass by i'm actually doing stuff i'm actually initiating things and dam has really given me the confidence to be who i am right now i would say similar things for myself as well i'm much more stronger mentally than i was because i do get easily burned out i'll be honest but um i'm just so much stronger mentally because i i just really don't care anymore like every time I walk into school, I don't care about what I'm wearing anymore. I don't care what will piss off administrators, what won't. If I miss school, I usually would cry if I miss school, but I just, I don't care anymore. Like I miss school, whatever. If like teachers are rude to me, like I just, I'm not afraid to say something back, um, which is something that I admire about myself because I convinced one of my teachers from last year um, that she was wrong. Um, after we had this whole big argument. Like, I'm going to continue speaking up for myself. I'm going to continue always being outspoken. My beliefs have changed, in conclusion. Um, I used to believe in reform. I was like, criminal justice reform, yeah. School reform, yeah. Like, police reform, yeah. But now I'm like, no. Like, abolish everything. And it was Julia, actually, <laughs> who led me to do that. But I used to think about it, like, I thought about it a lot. And... I did reading too, and then I also had a lot of conversations. And I like watch videos, and I was just I was just talking to a lot of people who were abolitionists. And so, because I surrounded myself around those people, I realized that school cannot be reformed, police cannot be reformed, the criminal justice system cannot be reformed. These are things that need to be abolished. Um, and so because of that, I've trained myself to think more so restorative justice and moving away from punitive justice I always think about it every time I see something happen I'm like how do I move away from punitive measures and how do I turn this into a transformative experience for everyone so I'm starting to have deep conversations with myself on how I can change because like internally I also have work to do just because there are so many structural systems of oppression on us and we've been trained to think in a certain way to behave in certain ways and that if you don't then this will happen um, and so how to move away from that and so it's definitely a hard process like thinking about it and having these conversations but um, it's something that I feel comfortable doing now just because like damn has made me so much more stronger with my mental health and that's why I'm like like I love talking about abolition um, and so like my third year in DAM and 
yeah, third year into him. Um, and I would say like, I've, there are things that I definitely need to work on. Um, but like, I feel more liberated. Um, like I feel like really, really liberated after being in DIM. So I think for me, being in DAM and being part of this work has been such a healing experience because I was an activist as a young person, as a student, and we didn't have any organizations that you could go to that would say, yes, yes, you can change this school rule and this is unjust and it's not fair and it's not okay and you should be able to decide this for yourself. There just wasn't an organization like that. And so it's... I you know, floundered and kind of struggled. I dropped out of high school um, in large part because of fractured relationships with my with my school um, as a result of some student activism that I was doing very in a lonely way, very individual lone wolf, because I didn't know about community organizing yet. I was 16 and I was just, you know, talking back to my teachers and getting in trouble. And so to see DAM and, and students like Hafiza and Britton and all of the others who have done this work and made changes and done it in a way that is joyful and healing and about friendship and about empowerment and to see them, you know, go out to dinner after a protest and like just be friends with each other and <laughs> talk about their squishmallows and, you know, be kids and also be just these powerful, powerful community leaders. I think it's been a healing journey for me to, to feel less alone and to feel like, okay, this wasn't a personality flaw, which was very much sort of the narrative that my school gave to me. Like, why can't you just sit down and shut up about it? That this was real and that it really, I had a teacher once who just totally dismissed my belief that my rights as a student were being infringed upon. And, and she was a teacher that I was close with. To see, to turn that into sort of career and calling has been really exciting. And I, I couldn't do it if there weren't students like Hafiza and Britain and the founders of DAM and all of the members that have come through DAM who sort of repeatedly prove what I said at 15 years old at you know, my high school, which was like our rights as students matter and um, we as young people matter. And so it's been a sort of a full cycle kind of journey and moment. Um, and I'm very grateful to the young people in DAM for sort of like making that possible because it really, wouldn't be possible if they didn't go to board meetings and shout down their board members and plan protests and, you know, make petitions and do all of that stuff that I didn't know how to do in 2010, um, but they now can do and I can support them. So very, very grateful to them. I'm not just a student and you're not just a teacher. You have a life outside of this environment that we're in, while also still maintaining that professional relationship. The best relationships I've had with teachers, the teachers are, they're vulnerable without being unprofessional about it. Like they're just very transparent, like, hey, I've got some family stuff going on, so I'm not having a good day. I just need to, I'm probably not going to be here for the next few days. I need to take some time off. I need to just rest. I'm not feeling good. And understanding that students are going to feel that way too, you know? And being lenient, understanding about work, and just taking time for yourself. Like letting teachers, you know, take their time getting work in and letting students take their time getting work in. Because not everyone is willing to give up their health for work. So you have to just be understanding of that. And also teachers have to understand that school is awful. The teachers that I've had a relationship with, 
relationships with, they know that school is awful. And they usually try their best to go outside the norm of what a teacher should do, like accepting late work throughout the entire uh, semester. That's not something a lot of teachers are expected to do. And letting students go to the bathroom whenever or just step outside and take a breather. For some reason, that's not normal. Um, I think that's something that should change. Um, just basically understanding that the way things are is not normal and it's not good for either either teachers or students and understanding that you're more than a teacher and more than a student and you're a person as well. The last few years I've just had really rough awful teachers. One teacher just being openly transphobic, the other teacher just being really racist and sexist, um, another teacher telling me to go back to my country on the first week of school. Um, and so I've just had a lot of awful experiences with teachers, but this year, like I really love my teachers this year. I'm gonna specifically talk about my English teacher here. She's she's literally everything that Britain described. And maybe it's because she loves Toni Morrison, I don't know. <laughs> but I can just tell that she is someone who feels liberated. She she's awesome for specific like class rules, like. You're allowed to eat, like, in the class. A lot of teachers don't love that. You're allowed to, like, step out and take a call. Um, if you have, like, work, like, she made this very clear. And she said, I understand that you all are also people and that you also have jobs and other responsibilities. So I'm going to try my best not to take up much of your time. But if I do, then let me know. And I will always allow you to turn in work um and she also said I don't know if this is like illegal <laughs> but she said um like if you do tell me that your mental health is not doing great that you have depression or um, other mental needs for you to like be in this class then just let me know so I know why you're not doing work why you're not participating why you have your head down things like that and she made it very clear that she's not going to tell the counselor and that's when I was like yeah she's liberated um because for a teacher to understand that calling parents is not okay when a student isn't completing their work or like is constantly just not feeling well like that is something that like one made me feel safe in her class especially because sometimes parents can be the cause why you're feeling like this um and then second the fact that she like specifically said i'm not going to tell the counselor because i had a really bad experience with my counselor in freshman year and i never like wanted to go back to her for any personal reason again like the fact that she understood that without like us having to explain um is something that made me really happy because a lot of the times we feel the need to explain our own history. Like, why do I have to tell you that you shouldn't be saying slurs? Why should I have to tell you that you shouldn't be saying this or using this term? Um, and so the, the fact that she like understood that didn't make us feel like we had to explain why. Like that just helped me know who she was as a person and what she believed in. But it's things like that where you can identify a teacher who is practicing liberation in their, in their classes. One of the things that I love about working with young people I mean, that has challenged me in, in 
given me space to grow as an adult working with young people is that young people come to DAM knowing that they don't know everything and that people are going to make mistakes. And so we've had members say things that were not the right language or inappropriate or they came into it with a different understanding of something and we have to talk about it. And I think my experiences in adult circles have often been everyone digs their heels in and says, no, I'm right about this and I know all of it. And that isn't how I've seen the young people interact with each other in DAM. We've had to negotiate and to admit our limitations and say when we are (laughs) unsure or new to something. And and that goes for me as much as for anybody else in this space as, as the adult. I don't know everything. So how do we navigate teaching each other? So it's a space of learning and a space of growing and no one is perfect and no one is complete. Um, And we know that because for one thing, everyone there is is a young person and is a student. And so they come to the space with that knowledge. But even as we grow up and as we become adults and our members become alumni and go to college, they still kind of keep that growth mindset of I'm constantly learning from the world. Things are constantly changing. And so harm is... I think easier to deal with because we don't think that the person who harmed did it on purpose and came to this space, you know, fully (laughs) complete and will never change. Um, We know that person is still learning. So I've always admired how the young people in DAM call each other in and, and educate each other. What brings you joy and what sustains joy for y'all? I like going outside. I like being outside. I love the feeling of the sun on my skin. And I also really like playing games, especially um, with other people. Taking time to myself makes me feel good, but also spending time with the people I care about. Also, I've noticed that I play a lot of games that make me feel angry. So it's not really me winding down, but it's still something that I really enjoy. But I should probably find some stuff that, like, helps me relax and just, you know, sit down and not stress for a second. But I'm just so used to stress that it's actually pretty comfortable for me. Um, I find a lot of joy in organizing. (laughs) I feel like that was expected. Um, But it's something that, while it also does feel draining, um, it also feels healing in some ways. And there's Nothing that brings me more joy than sitting at dinner after a protest with Julia, the adult youth, and like listening to weird conversations that are happening on the radio. Um, Julia knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) We come from so many different backgrounds and experiences. And so that the way that we're all just like together at the same time, united under an issue like that makes me feel joyful like there are billions of people in the world and somehow I end up here um and I love it I love the work that I do um and I'm so excited because like nowhere like anywhere you go you will always find someone who is doing organizing in their community um and you're always able to learn about them and hear about their work and so like I've just been putting myself out there because it brings me joy to hear about other people um, and their stories. You know, the young people of DAM are absolutely my joy every day because they just are so constantly teaching me things and I'm so 
excited to be a part of this group and this, this super unique and weird thing that we just decided to do that is growing and working out and happening. Um, and so it's it's definitely a joy to to eat together, to plan together, to have meetings. We do a lot of social gatherings, and those are always just delightful opportunities to get to know each other as people. And so be, being able to be um, at work um, and with young people and be just a person and have fun together is really a lovely experience that I I, I hope for more adults to be able to relax and be joyful around young people. Thank you so much, Britton and Hafiza and Julia, uh, for sharing space with us, for sharing your stories, um, and for sharing about all the ways that you are moving uh, with each other and in the communities that you're in. Monet, what do you feel like you're taking away from this conversation? There's a, a song <laughs> by Ludacris. <laughs> if you're from Georgia, if you're from the South, you know the song I'm thinking about. And it's like, move, get out the way. Also, Beyonce picks up that song on, on her new album, Renaissance. But, you know, we're thinking about adults walking with youth. So much of what I heard was get out the way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like walk with us and then get out the way. Like let us do the things that we know that are possible. We know that we can do. And there seemed to be also a, a really serious marker between adults who were helping. And so when I say get out the way, it's like they're walking with the youth and believing them. And at the same time, there are adults who are in the way, in the way of wholeness in schools. And I, I just, I think I was repeatedly struck just by the energy. Like there's so much energy that, that youth are engaged in inside and outside of schools to ensure that they get what they need. And how do we as adults, how do we as educators take up that, that call to action from these young people and say that as grown folks, I want y'all to put down some of this burden. Joy was like such a beautiful through line. Like even in the midst of doing this work, there's so much joy. And what would it mean for adults to to engage in this way, like building community, eating, hanging out, talking, laughing. And so what are the things that educators in schools need to remove accountability to in order to move and joy in this kind of community that youth have shared they need in schools? That really stood out to me too, Monet, is just young people know what they need. They know what they need to learn. They know what they need to be thriving in a space. They know what they need. And so I think what also stood out to me is about how both Hafiza and Britain talked about the ways that being in a youth-led organized space, like damn, the type of confidence and self-assuredness that they now have as they enter school spaces, having been with damn, and the ways in which they both name their needs to to the grown folks they're working with, but also just in some ways, like Hafiza said, I don't care. There's so many things I don't care about anymore that I'm not going to give energy to. And so it, it's making me think as someone who is working with young people, how might we create spaces where young folks are putting their needs at the center, where like we start there, 
we start with like, what do you need to show up in this space, to learn in this space, to be vulnerable in this space, to ask questions, to take risks, to be curious, to connect, to be trusting. How can we co-create that space together with you and your needs at the center? And like, what, what might that mean then for learners in our space and also for ourselves? I was really struck by the ways Julia has found healing by working with young people in a way that is that's entering friendship and playing together and being together and knowing each other and just showing up as themselves and how how much joy and fun there is in that and just thinking about how many educators are leaving school systems school systems that are you know just toxic and carceral to youth and and to and to the grown folks in there as well when we're centering youth it's not only supportive of them but it's also supportive of us too because it makes a much more healing and humanizing place to be. Uh, my name is Emily Stutz, and something that I love about myself is that I think I'm a pretty strong person, and I think I've grown stronger over the years. I'm Grayson. Um, I like watching anime and like reading manga. My name is Kaiden Nardi, and something I love about myself is that most of the time I'm self-aware. Hi, my name is Kendall. I am 10 years old, and one thing that I like about myself is that I'm really creative. My first ever bike to school day was in 2018, and it was nothing like this, actually. It was with first graders only, for the most part, and there were some kids who were really into biking. It would always point out, like, oh, here are the bikes going by when we would be on neighborhood walks. So we did a neighborhood study in first grade, and one of the inquiry lenses we took was biking. And as part of that, my partner and I taught kids how to ride bikes and then kids made a flyer for the school for bike to school day and I think we had maybe just like nine or ten families who biked along their own route and most of them were families who biked anyways and felt really comfortable biking but it was nothing like what we experienced last year I mean that was beyond my wildest dreams I would really like to tell a bit of the story of bike to school day because it was probably one of the most joyful moments of my life last school year um, we we were split up into different groups. From my group, there was at least 15 people, but there were like, I heard there were like 25 other groups. We just biked down 4th Avenue from 11th Street, and it was like really slow. It was nice. Okay, so we met up at, at Prospect Park, and we rode down, I think it was 2nd Street. Well, first, when I woke up, I went on the Long Island Railroad um, to Atlantic Terminal, and then we went, I think, a few blocks. Yeah, we went a few blocks to get a city bike because we couldn't bring our bikes with us on the train. After we got the city bike, we met up with Miss Emily's group. I don't know. It just felt like a beautiful day. The sun was shining. It was gorgeous. But there was like a coolness to the air, and also all the trees were shadowing out the sun, so it wasn't very bright clean and like fresh because like every morning I wake up um sometimes my mom opens my window and I get like a nice view and then when I go outside it sort of like smells good like doesn't smell like someone peed on the street um so I live in Park Slope so it's a slope and my school is like at the hill 
well, it's a really steep hill, so you zoomed out really, really fast. Well, there's a bike lane, so it's okay when you go really fast. And also the blocks are pretty long, so get up like your speed and then right zoom right down it. I think it's very fun. It's like really ideal. Families met up and it was so cool to see how even one mom who ran the full distance of the bike to school day alongside her kid who was biking was just smiling and cheering the whole time. Had like a couple roots with one like adult leading each route and they went like all throughout Brooklyn and they picked up everyone who wanted to come on the ride. It was really funny because our group got separated in like two groups while we were going down and all the people on the sh- on the sidewalk that were like scootering and walking were far behind and the people on the bikes were in front and it was just really funny and they caught up but <laughs> and there we like found a city bike parking thing and we parked our bikes my mom and my sister was there we saw all of our like friends there like the whole school and i i remember seeing kids with signs on their bikes and kids with streamers on their bike kids on cargo bikes like grayson mentioned and you know we were all just there together cheering each other on and then we had like a breakfast a couple pastries and i actually got to school much earlier than I thought I would. I got to school because of that I rode a bike like 10 minutes earlier. And I would usually sometimes be late because sometimes when I do take the subway, it's like a delay. So it was like completely safe and everyone could enjoy. But you did have to wake up a little early. I think bike to school day should be like in every school. Like maybe it should happen like once or twice a month. Because it actually, like, gives, like, kids energy, and it could, like, refresh them in the morning, and they could be exercising, too. It was really breathtaking, I think. It's not often in life, I think, that we get to be so overwhelmed with joy. There are a few special moments like that, and I feel really lucky that that got to be one of those moments, because I love being a teacher, I love being with kids, and especially... Being back in school, I'm sure you hear this a lot, like, you know, after the pandemic, we're all so happy when we can just be together. And this felt like one of those moments. So we have Lakeisha Sanders here on the podcast, historian and lawyer. And um, we have noticed that in this, you know, these past few years, conversation has certainly increased about the debt that students in this country incur to go to college. Last month, President Biden announced that there would be cancellation of student debt, specifically Pell Grant recipients would receive up to $20,000 and non-Pell Grant holders who are repaying student loans could receive up to $10,000 worth of of debt cancellations. So Keisha, how do we get here? How do we get to a place where college students hold debt? It's really a matter of greed and chicanery. Students who are barely out of high school, who are barely adults, have been induced to take out in some, in many cases, large amounts of money to access what they believe is the American dream of great careers, great lives, the ability to build wealth, to the ability to have 
it all. The American dream that this country has sold people and especially young people for quite some time. When you're told from a young age that the natural progression of life after you finish high school is to go to college so that you can access that American dream. And then once you get to high school and graduate, you're graduating high school and you have to go to, you're going to college because you want to be that successful American that everyone is told from a young age that they should be. And you're told that you have to take out large amounts of student debt. You have no concept of debt Students are taking out Monet, the equivalent of a luxury car worth of debt per year. Chicanery, trickery, shenanigans. Well, a little bit of history. Let's let's go back. Truth be told, when I was doing some of the research myself, I was surprised to learn that the first federal financial aid program that started was student loans, not student grant. In 1958, I believe, what became known as the Perkins Loan was created. And then you had the Guaranteed Student Loan Program created in 1965. A little bit less than a decade later, you had the Pell Grant created in 1972 to start the 1973 school year. But who we know and love, Sally Mae, was created at the same time. It's almost as if, if we could go back in time and try to quarterback this thing. The powers that be designed student financial aid to be based off of student loans mostly. And not to be missed is that four years before the Perkins loan was created, we had the Supreme Court decision in 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, which eliminated separate but equal educational facilities and public schooling across the nation. So to me, the way to look at it is that there's just some, has to be some shenanigans going on. You mean four years after we now tell Black students, students of color, and also the women in there, women are now being allowed to go to college, like at schools like Yale that didn't let women go to college with, with young men at Harvard and Columbia, the, some of the Ivies and other schools. You're telling a large swath of the population that heretofore had been denied the right to go to many of our institutes of higher learning that they can go. Then now we're telling them take out loans to go. But that didn't really start to be much of an issue into the 1970s. That's when you have the cost of college starts to increase. Student loans start to be much more of the student financial aid package than grant. You have noted Republicans like Ronald Reagan before he was even president. So we can't even say the start of the Reagan administration in the 1980s. You got to go back a decade earlier when he's governor of California, and he lets it be known that he doesn't think the University of California university system should be tuition-free for its students. He's bothered by not only the activism on campus, but what he sees as a sense of entitlement of those who hadn't been being able to go to college and university. So would that be um, really largely people who have been historically marginalized and shut out of historically white colleges and universities? Right, and they're going there, they're making demands, they're saying for civil rights. And you have a lot of activism that's opposed to the Vietnam War and American foreign policy. We know that university campuses are a hotbed of student activism. And he's thinking, well, why should the state of California be giving these people a free ride when they are so hostile to American interests? Take out student loans. From that time up through the present, 
little by little or more by more state legislatures that decrease the funding to universities and colleges within their states so that students have to start taking out more in loans than they receive and grants and universities have to increase their tuition because they're getting less support from their state legislature. I'm also thinking about where we are right now in terms of for-profit colleges, right? The early 2000s are also marked by the presence and rapid growth of for-profit colleges like Everest, um, DeVry, for example. How did, how did that impact student debt? For-profit colleges and universities are just that. Their bottom line, their reason Detra is making a profit. And they primarily make their profit from students that they enroll, taking out federal student loans, private student loans, and then also grants. They make their money from student financial aid. And so there is a perverse incentive for these schools and universities to enroll as many students as possible to have them take out as many loans, as as much in student loans as possible if they couldn't get it in grants to fund their bottom line so that they can have a profit. But what we've seen since the Obama administration is what I see as a much needed crackdown on the abuses of the for-profit college university system. You, the problem was that you have a lot of desperate students who believe in the American dream. The students who went to for-profit colleges and universities were no different from those who go to traditional schools. They just probably had some life challenges being older students, students with disabilities, students who did not go to college right out of high school, people who were more likely to come from low-income environments, who probably couldn't afford school. Also folks who needed the flexibility of time. So if I'm helping to take care of my home or if I have children or if I'm a caregiver, I can't attend the classes that a traditional school may offer. That's absolutely right. And what you would see is I would see these commercials running during the day targeting these potential students with the, the whole idea of lift yourself up by your bootstraps and you too can have your piece of the American dream. And these students were unrolling a lot of times being deceived by these and colleges and universities about what the graduation rates were, what the post-graduation employment rates were. And a lot of these schools shut down, were shut down or folded because of poor administration and these students were left with worthless degrees or were were unable to complete their degree. Thank you, Keisha. Thank you, Bestie. So y'all, y'all, y'all stay tuned for part two of our series on student debt coming at you next month. And uh, in our next episode, we'll move from past to present and discussing what has and hasn't been done to protect students from debt accumulation and what we can do about it. We have power, y'all. We have choices. See you then. All right, we've made it to our closing. Woohoo! Whew. Friends, in our previous season, we always called this segment our exit ticket. I think really taking from our time as teachers and thinking about ways that we might like close out a lesson. And this season, we're moving away from using that language and 
for now calling it our closing. Maybe we will imagine another way to, to name this, this segment. Always immense gratitude to Jay Gillen in our hive mind. You might have heard him in episode six of season one where he spoke alongside the Baltimore Algebra Project and is always so generous about calling us in and helping us think critically about the ways that we move, the ways that we speak, the ways that we are working in community with others. And so Jay really helped us think about the idea of an exit ticket is, is really carceral in nature. And that brings us to gratitude, gratitude. We're so thankful to have Hafisa, Britton, and Julia, our friends at DAM and the Get Schooled podcast, which is one of our favorite podcasts. DAM has our own podcast called Get Schooled, and you can listen to it on Spotify. Just look up Get Schooled. We're going to be releasing a new episode in a few weeks, so look out for that. So please go and listen, y'all. So good. And we also want to thank Emily Stutz, Kai Day, Kendall, and Grayson, who shared their stories of biking to school together. And we want to thank Lakeisha Sanders, who is also one of my dearest, dearest friends, also our resident historian, legal brain, Black girl brilliance, the list could go on, for revealing the architecture of student debt, who gets trafficked into it, and how this is all by design. So shout out to the folks who helped to bring y'all this episode. We are grateful. And then also just like the folks in our lives and our communities in our worlds beyond this podcast too. I want to extend gratitude Um, at the beginning of this school year. I'm in a new classroom. I'm in a new school. And I just want to really extend gratitude to the educators who really like bless the space that I'm in, the classroom I'm in before me. And I've been able to talk with teachers who taught in this classroom previous years and they've been telling me about moments they had students they had magical things that happened in there like I just feel gratitude for the ways that people really have honored and created this space that I get to now be in with students Mm. blessing is such a sacred act and it's an inheritance that we sit in as educators that people have blessed us with their time, their energy, their goodness, and the spirit of of folks who have blessed them. And so we want to bless you on this podcast. So we're talking with youth, we're talking with educators who are listening, parents, families, caregivers, those of you who believe in the power of people to change the context that they're in, for liberation. We just want to bless you all and bless the labor you all do every day. Bless the tasks, the loving. We want to bless your steps, your coming, your going, your classrooms, the words that you speak, the decisions you make, the curriculum you offer to your students, the curriculum you offer to yourself and your loved ones. We hope that even though the school year may have started off for many of you with a sprint, that and the push to do 10 million things at once really well and be good at all of them. We hope that we can bless the call to be accountable to liberation. Thank you so much, Monet. 
As promised from last season, we are creating transcripts of our episodes of Dancing on Desks this season. And so you can access those transcripts by heading over to our intellectual inheritance, um, to our show notes, and over to the episodes tab on our website, dancingondesks.org, where you can find the transcript there. Woohoo! We are at the end of the episode. End of the episode. What was especially powerful for us in this conversation with Britton, Hafisa, and Julia, and really the conversation that they were having with each other, is this reminder of what it means to live in what Adrienne Marie Brown calls liberated relationship. And she notes that these relationships are, quote, one of the ways we actually create abundant justice. I love that word, that phrase, abundant justice. The understanding that there is enough attention, care, resource, and connection for all of us to access belonging, to be in our dignity, and to be safe in community, end quote. So we offer you a few questions. Um, the first being, how do youth and adults co-create those spaces of accountability, listening, dreaming, freedom in and outside of school? And then also, what allows relationships between adults and youth in schools to exist in this kind of liber liberatory relationality? Uh, if you have thoughts feelings, questions, wonderings, curiosities that are emerging from you after having listened to this episode, please slide into our DMs at Dancing on Desks on Instagram. You can send us a voice memo, a voice note on our website at dancingondesks.org. Love to hear from you. So I think, Monet, I think we did it. I love you, Erin. I love you too. And we love y'all. Thanks for being with us. Hey, y'all. I'm Adrian King, a gardener, amateur athlete and graduate student living in the occupied lands of the Anishinaabe, including Ottawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi and Wyandotte peoples. Dancing on Desk is a podcast created by the lovely, brilliant, and visionary storytellers and educators, Monet Cooper and Erin Thiessen. Mara Johnson and Elliot Wilkes created our theme music. Today's production could have never happened without our hive mind. So much gratitude to them. Check out your Dancing on Desks fam online at dancingondesks.org and on Instagram at Dancing on Desks. And share your stories with us there. Talk with you soon. Peace, y'all. I just started at the beginning. You, I feel like you were getting a feel for what you were going to say. Okay. And, and then, then you, I... kept re you kept repeating things. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Oh my god, I'm sorry. Hugo just farted under the tent. I love it. Um, <laughs> but I don't love that for you. Oh god. Let's keep I'm that sorry. in for the we'll keep recording. We'll keep that in for the um <laughs> for the <laughs> for the um, what's I'm gonna call it? The hidden track. Here's your hidden all track. Coughlin, all that coffee he did <laughs> pushed it out. Okay. Okay, here we go. In three, two, one.